This time, we're taking a look at the Silence of the Lambs knockoff, The Cell. And along the way, we ask, why does this movie look like a really long music video? How did Jennifer Lopez go from horror films to queen of the chick flick? And can this type of psychology actually work? Let's dive in on this edition of Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, hello, my fellow quarantine sci-fi nerds. We are here for another rendition of Force Fed Sci-Fi. My name is the Knots serial killer, Sean Michael Culp, and along with me is my friendly friend and co-host. Uh, I am Chris Rupp. <laughs> Hello, Chris Rupp. How are you doing today? Oh, dandy. I'm excited to talk about The Cell and walk our audience through this uh, this very odd genre bender of thriller, science fiction, and horror. Yeah. I would say that is a perfect, it is a very odd genre bender of a film, for sure. It's, uh, and it has nothing, it has nothing to do with cell phones, might I add. <laughs> no, surprisingly, uh, no cell phones, but literal cells in this case. <laughs> literal cells. So, let's dive in with our awesome synopsis. Break it away, Chris. All right. So when serial killer Carl Starger slips into a coma, the FBI enlists the help of psychologist Catherine Dean to go into Starger's mind using experimental technology to help them locate his final victim before time runs out. Ooh. And that's really it. It's a, it's a very surface plot. There is... Yeah. That like yeah. like this is this is it. This is the entire movie right here. And it it takes a while before we actually get to the whole Catherine Dean is enlisted to help the FBI investigate Starger's mind. I think it's about maybe forty five, fifty minutes before Dean actually goes into um that suit and is sent into his mind. Yeah, there is a lot of exposition and character building before you actually get to like the whole murder mystery point. You know, like serial killer has woman in coma. FBI needs to find him. Let's go and get the deets. You know, it takes forever for the setup. Yeah, I mean, and on paper that sounds like a very interesting concept. Kind of takes a a sci-fi skew at yeah. the Silence of the Lambs um, thriller horror genre that 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 film really pioneered mm -hmm. but we find out that there is only one <laughs> silence of the lamb exactly and no no <laughs> it does not include so much religious symbolism like this film well oddly enough the the director of the film tarsim singh he was more known for directing music videos before this film the cell was his uh debut in the feature film director's chair so to speak and oh my god yeah his claim to fame before this was directing rem's music video for losing my religion so <laughs> dude that makes so much sense when you look at the set pieces and like the camera angles like everything it feels like a long music video exactly and it's it's really weird to watch some of the set pieces that Jennifer Lopez has to go through, especially when she initially enters Starger's mind. It's like, it's not even like um like an REM music video. It looks like um, it looks like Christina Aguilera's video for Fighter when she was trying that whole like dirty rocker phase of her career. I can't say I've never uh, checked that out. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> like early two thousand to you, Chris. Early two thousands music was like my jam. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you you rocked out to the Britney Spears, Britney, Britney. Well, again, I w I was young. I didn't know what good music was until I was about fifteen. So yeah, that was what I did. Well, you know, going through puberty and everything. I mean, I understand. I uh, I didn't get that choice. I listened to Christian music until I was like fifteen. So. Oh, you poor poor soul. You... <laughs> it explains so much. <laughs> so who? Uh, 
who else? We, like you said, J Lo's in this. Well, actually, and, before uh, we talk about the cast a little bit, I want to talk about the screenwriter of the film, uh, Mark Protasevich. Sure. This is also he he. This was his screenwriting debut. Okay. But after this film was released, he had a lot of unrealized projects that were rumored about or that he was attached to at one point, uh, including a sequel for Batman and Robin before that movie bombed big time. And his plot was legit. His Batman film was going to be called Batman Unchained, which which already sounds amazing. (laughs) His film had Scarecrow as the villain and the Joker returning as a hallucination. Oh my God. He even... He even had written in Harley Quinn into the film as Joker's illegitimate daughter. Wow. And this film was so far down the developmental track that even Coolio, the rapper, was cast to play Scarecrow. What? Oh my god. Yeah. The 90s. And the film baby. was su- the film was supposed to end with Batman Bruce Wayne going to Bali or someplace in the in the far east in the jungle. And the film was supposed to end with him being swarmed and surrounded by bats. Wow. In this sort of like, I've embraced my fear moment. I am now the literal Batman. <laughs> that sounds amazing, but perhaps a little yeah. a little too, I don't know. Maybe it would have worked in the 90s. Who knows, right? They were all set to go with this film, but then Batman and Robin just totally bond and it even tanked um Tim Burton's planned Death of Superman film, which is a very, that's a very interesting uh, internet rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> I didn't know that, that uh, Tim Burton was going to do that. Death of Superman, you said? Yeah, uh, Nicolas Cage was set to be oh, yeah. Superman. Yeah, he even tried on the costume and everything. What a crazy There's world. a very... There's a very interesting YouTube documentary called The Death of Superman Lives about the behind the scenes making of that film. Yeah. Because they were all set to make that film. They even had done uh, computer effects pre-visualization. They had built some sets. They had costume design. A script was written. And it's probably one of the most high profile films ever that was never made. That's insane. Well, I mean... They could always do it. They just have to do what? The Dark Knight uh, Returns or whatever, and they just cast Christian Bale and uh, have Nicolas Cage as Superman. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with that, though. <laughs> right. Also, I found Keaton. this out, too. Mark Mark Prudisevich was also in discussions to write the script for Jurassic Park 4. Oh, wow. And... He had even met with Steven Spielberg before the producers decided to go for the soft reboot option with Jurassic World and casting Chris Pratt, and now we have those films. So those. Mark Prudisevich really kind of, he's kind of like, uh, how, to, how how best to put it? He's sort of like the NFL player who, you know you know who he is? He's like, Mark Prudisevich is like Bryce Harper. He leaves a team that's really good, and then the year after he leaves, they win the World Series. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's, wow. He's like the Nomar Garcia Parra on the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gets traded to a crappy team and then loses. Boom, baby. That sucks, because it sounds like this guy like has some interesting like ideas for big franchises and then ends up doing the sell. I mean, he did what? Thor, I Am Legend. So, I mean, those aren't two terrible films. Maybe he's just like one of those weird guys in Hollywood that's like, yeah, he's got some really good ideas, but he's also like really weird. Like, you don't want to hang out in the room with him for longer than five minutes because he's going to say something weird. (laughs) He just makes everyone feel a little uncomfortable every now and then with his side eye. It's just like, you know... He's all right, but I can't take too much of that side eye. <laughs> Go away, Mark. Go right, away. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, all right. Mark, Mark, what is that? Pro? Protosevich. Protosevich. Mark Protosevich, everyone. So, <laughs> somehow. It somehow finds himself on the cusp of making great Hollywood blockbusters, and then the, everyone decides, oh, no, we're going to do something else. Your Your services are no longer required. Yeah, they got the guy that has all of the what would be 
writing, and then they get the director of R.E.M., Madonna, Nine Inch, or I think Nine Inch Nails movies, music videos, and they throw together this movie called The Cell that somehow stars Vince Vaughn as an FBI guy. Go figure. Because not what, right? Wasn't like 90s Vince Vaughn trying to be a serious actor? Yeah. I mean, he had this really weird trajectory in the mid to late 90s. His really big breakthrough role was um, was this buddy comedy he did with uh, John Favreau called Swingers, which is a really great movie, very funny movie. Okay. And then he does The Lost World Jurassic Park, you know, you know, action. He's not exactly the Vince Vaughn we know of today. He's more of like a side character to Jeff Goldblum's Ian Malcolm. Mm-hmm. And then he goes and plays Norman Bates in this unnecessary remake of Psycho. <laughs> a shot for a couple shot of years before remake. the cell. Yeah. Yes, it is one of the it is one of the worst films ever made, and it's just one of the most un. No one asked for this film. Let's just say that. Yeah. No one ever asked for it. But Hollywood does that every now and then. But we also mentioned Jennifer Lopez as Catherine Dean in this film. Yeah. J-Lo before, I guess, when she tried her acting bit, you know, in the 2000s. She's maintained a pretty successful career both as a singer and as an actress. Oh, she's still in movies? Oh, yeah. She was in Hustlers last year, which I have not seen, but I know she got a lot of Oscar buzz and was considered a snub at award season. So she's still she's still in movies. I think she's slowly kind of coming back to Hollywood. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But also also she's another actress who the, the late 90s were very good to her for her film career she had done the the biopic selena and that was a very that was a very big successful movie at the time she was also in anaconda which is a like you i guess nowadays it would be like a considered like a creature feature it wasn't very good (laughs) Um, and then she does then she does out of sight with george clooney so she's working with some big time actors in the late 90s all right so she's had the appropriate talent around her. And I and I would say that she in this film isn't terrible at all. Um I know some people like poo poo, you know, because when a singer tries to act like, you know, JT at the beginning of his acting career, he was pretty lousy. But J Lo is pretty good. I mean, I didn't not believe her emotions, you know? I felt like the scenes that sucked wasn't her fault. It was just like the writing and the direction, you know, the director was more interested in the set work than the uh, actual content in the script. Right, exactly. But she wasn't bad. Um, Who else? We got Vincent D'Onofrio. Very, I think he's, uh, he, you know, he was on what, Law and Order or something? for a long time yeah he was on one of the law and order spinoffs a uh, criminal intent for a long time yeah. but he yeah we haven't i don't think we've talked too much about him on the show i mean he's been in a couple of our past entries including uh men in black and strange days but he's had a very successful career as an actor he started off with full metal jacket mystic pizza strange um excuse me, JFK, and he certainly fit the bill, in my opinion, to play Starger in, in this film. Oh, by far. He's uh, he's really talented, I would say. Dare I say underrated in some regards because he's just that hell of a character actor where I feel like you tell him to play a role and he'll play it perfect to the T. But I don't think he, like, steals the scenes, you know? Like, maybe it's because of how he looks, physically where you're just like oh i want to see him as a leading man you know right he doesn't have leading man qualities to him but he's if you need him to play a big guy or just like a dark dark character he can certainly pull that off absolutely and then anyone else of noteworthy that you would say maybe i don't know what is that dylan baker i've seen him in something i can't remember what i've seen him in Dylan Baker's probably most known for playing Dr. Connors in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films. Okay, there we go. You know what else was captivating in this film? And my girlfriend pointed it out. Uh, the music. She was like, what is that music and why is it so overbearing? And Howard Shore was the, he was the musician. Like, he was the guy. And Howard Shore was really famous. 
uh, famous from Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, which after, you know, this movie came out in 2000, so the next year in 01, he got really famous for his, you know, the soundtrack and everything. I don't know. I think that the score really, it doesn't do the movie justice. No, not at all. <laughs> it's so weird at times. It's so disjointed and so <laughs> there's no like clear themes throughout the film, I don't feel like. No, it doesn't feel like a performance at all, you know. It doesn't it's not well, obviously I always say like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars is probably the best depiction of like a score that tells a story in and of itself. But you know, I think he tries, you know, like as a composer, Howard Shore really he does the best he can to salvage this. Right, and unfortunately, Tarsim Singh didn't know better at the time to actually construct a cohesive film. <laughs> That's true. But we've we've talked about quite a bit in as to the look of this film, and right away, there's a lot of unique imagery. There's a lot of unique symbolism, and oh, yeah. you can tell that Tarsim Singh leaned hard, and I mean hard, into the artistic influences that he loves. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is so There's there's so many. There's um a painter by the name of Odd Nerdum, that's his actual name. Um HR <laughs> Giger and the brothers Quay were all influences on the look of the film and Singh has cited them as influences in in the majority of his films and how they look. Oh well, yeah, they if you ever seen like REM Losing My Religion, when I was watching this film I'm like, dude, this reminds me so much of that. Because I've seen those music videos because I was a huge REM fan in the 2000s and it's like it's so weird because you're watching this movie and you're like these dream sequences are so intricate where they put so much work into the set pieces where it really is captivating and it but it like feels like a music video almost you know you've never I've never seen uh dream sequences like this where it's just so clean and sleek and it's just so intricate but embedded with like such religious symbolism it beats you over the head almost right and it's and then it's all meshed together with a lot of this dark imagery yeah. that Singh took from his influences I looked up some of Odd Nerdum's paintings and one of them it's a painting called Twilight it's literally of a woman taking a dump in the forest <laughs> really Oh my. Yeah, I saw this painting and it's a woman, you know, she's got her bare ass about a foot above the ground and I'm and I'm thinking is she about to pinch a loaf or something? What's happening? That's hilarious. What a It is so weird. <laughs> hey man, art is art, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, it's a loose definition. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. If you could paint a you can paint a portrait of a woman taking a dump in the forest and it and you get money off of it. I mean, props to you, but really <laughs> you're going for poop art? Okay. <laughs> yeah. They just I just can't believe it like the scene where they take uh Vince Vaughn's like what is it? His small intestine and they just start like wrapping it around on the torture wheel or whatever. And like Jennifer Lopez has is wearing like that neck brace. Uh, D'Onofrio's like has the horns. He represents Satan. It was just so, so brilliant, so beautiful, like mesmerizing almost. I dare say, but at the same token, you're just watching this, going, "Wow, this is just something that you would never see." It's so, it almost goes too long, you know? Yeah, and it's. I don't know. I, I, I feel like in any other film, these influences and this imagery would work, but it's it's almost too much at at some at some points in the film. I think it's because like the when they're not in the dream sequences and they're back to reality, it's just so boring and mundane, you know, like the script in there, like on the real world is just there's nothing exciting about it. Like they try. Yeah, there's no real like. There's no real definition between what world we're in mm -hmm. at any given point. And, and and I feel like this is something that a lot of filmmakers address in this film, if you had in different films, I should say, 
that if you are going to depict a film with two different worlds, like the matrix, for example, where there is the real world and there is a matrix and you have to do as much as you can with your cinematographer and your lighting team to distinguish that, Hey, this is a different world than, than what is outside our main story at the moment. Mm-hmm. And they definitely do. I just think it just struggles from just a boring, boring plot. They had a really good idea, well, but yeah. they just couldn't craft really good scenes and good relationships between our characters and like the doctors, you know, and the FBI agents. It just always fell flat. I don't know if you experienced this while you were watching it, but I noticed that this film has some pretty serious technical issues. Oh, really? No, I didn't see that. At least in the version that I watched, the I had to rent it from Amazon Prime oh. and... <laughs> The version I watched was super grainy, oh. and the the sound design was way off. There were many points in the film where oh. the musical score was louder than the dialogue, and there are other points where the dialogue was insanely quiet. Oh, I did. So that was... Yeah, I got that. That was maddening to watch and to have to deal with. I did get the dialogue and music score for sure, because uh, I sent like videos on whatsapp to my girlfriend i'm like dude check this out (laughs) it just like when uh it's the scene with vince vaughn and he finally wakes up you know jennifer lopez breaks out of her i guess mental entrapment from the guy and it's that chick swimming in the blue tank whatever and he realizes you know the uh the the company logo but i sent videos of that and i say Alexis, this is just incredible. Look at this. And she responds saying, is that the musical score? Why is it so loud and overbearing? And I listen. I'm like, Jesus Christ, this thing is loud. It's blowing out my TV speakers. Yeah, there were a lot of points in the film where I had to turn it down. Yeah, same. Because it was so loud. And then two minutes later, the characters are quietly speaking. Then I have to crank up the volume again. It's just come on! I shouldn't have to do this. <laughs> it's some... Right? It's it's very inconsistent sound design Who? of the yes, film. Yes, exactly. Who's the sound editor? <laughs> like how how do they have a job? <laughs> I don't know, but they did not do a very good one in this film. No, no, they did not. It certainly doesn't help when you're trying to watch the film. 20 years later and i've watched films i own films from this same time period and they don't sound or look like this because usually around the 2000s it's a pretty good time for cameras and everything and our uh in hollywood it's a shame (laughs) you only see this in like movies from the 40s 50s and 60s where you're like oh god i gotta keep turning up the volume right and and despite the film's technical shortcomings Every frame of the film, especially when we're in Starger's mind, it looks like a portrait. Everything is meticulously crafted. Everything is in its place. Granted, the color palette is a little muted at times, but still, it's it's gorgeous. The frame, the framing of the film is gorgeous. Oh, beautiful. It's so mesmerizing. And especially the costume design as well. Everybody's in unique costumes when they're in Starger's mind, with the exception of Vince Vaughn. But that more plays into his character's unfamiliarity with his surroundings at that point in the film. Exactly. Exactly. How did you feel about the, like, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio as a serial killer? Mm, Well, thankfully he wasn't doing a Silence of the Lambs Dr. Lecter impression. (laughs) I mean, he, he was definitely trying to make Carl Sarger his own, like, his own character. And I think serial killers are... Whether you're, whether an actor is playing a fictional one or a real one, they're so hard to capture their essence and then put that and portray that on screen. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's it's really easy. I feel as an actor to get lost in the rabbit hole of being extra, and like the crazy Mano Man, where if you watch um, YouTube videos of what. Who's the guy, Jeffrey Dahmer, or the other dude from uh, Alaska? And he just seems like this normal guy. And once he starts talking about the murders and like how he ate people and did these terrible things, you're like, oh my God, this guy's a maniac. But I can definitely see actors 
portraying it too too left field, you know, where they get lost in the sauce. Yeah. It it like you said, it's very easy to go over the top with your with portraying a serial killer because there is there's still so much we don't understand about how serial killers act and how they operate. Mm-hmm. Would you say society, like in films, we kind of there's like an obsession towards it, or we really love seeing these characters in movies? Uh, not even in movies. I mean, there. Think about all the documentaries and even other podcasts that are out there in the world right now that discuss serial killers exclusively. Mm-hmm. There's tons. I mean, Netflix <laughs> is now. Yeah, Netflix has now gotten into it. I mean, I could probably name five or six different podcasts that I listen to that discuss serial killers. And this film, when it came out in the year 2000, it was right in this really kind of burgeoning obsession that society was beginning to have with serial killers. Yeah. There was a there's a really great book that came out in the mid nineties, and I think I've referenced it before on the show. It's called Mindhunter by John E. Douglas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I remember you saying that. So that was released in nineteen ninety five, and I can't help but think that Mark Pritisevich may have read that book, and that may have been influential while he was writing the screenplay because it's a very interesting idea. Like, hey, what if we could literally go mm-hmm. into the mind of a serial killer and see what makes them tick? Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of very interesting confluence of events in the mid 90s i mean you mentioned jeffrey dahmer john wayne gacy the aforementioned silence of the lambs was released in the early 90s so we've had this weird unhealthy obsession with the thought of serial killers ever since oh yeah well i think uh hannibal lecter um anthony hopkins portrayal kind of changed society's perception a lot because he's such a almost endearing character like how he portrays it in the movie where it's you don't want to root for him but you almost do because he's just so so civilized but at the same token acts so you know animalistic he bites the face off and i think that's kind of help um push for people's lust and curiosity of why people do the things they do. I mean, if you look online, Hannibal Lecter is voted always top five, top 10 best villains, you know, favorite villains of all time, because it's just so curious, you know, that portrayal, how one can like it's freaking kill someone, <laughs> rip their guts out and then listen to opera music and eat caviar and their brains at the same time. It's just so fascinating. It's so curious, and yet we apply so many of our real-world fears to what we see on screen. Mm-hmm. The the fear of the unknown and wrestling with the fact that a Hannibal Lecter-type person could be out in the world committing these horrible crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we would never know. It's just, it's, it's fascinating. Right. The- it's fascinating. I mean, I'm curious. The best on-screen villains come from a very dark place in our society. And that's kind of a little bit of my hang-up in this film with uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's portrayal because I know I personally enjoy the Joker from The Dark Knight. I I even like Bane from Rises. I enjoy uh, Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter. But Vincent D'Onofrio's character, he just... To me, he wasn't as fascinating layer-wise. You know, once you realize... I mean, he was curious. Religious cult and everything is why he's like this killer. But I think they went too far with him like being suspended by like the rings in his back and everything. It just went a little too far left field where I'm like, maybe there's people that do this, but it's just... I don't know. it It wasn't... I feel like the director focused more on the wow factor of the things he does rather than who he is as a person. Right, and, and it would have helped if that if those rings that um, Starger was suspending himself from made sense. Like we don't see, we don't see anything like that when Dean is in Starger's mind about you know why being suspended like that, you know is is essential to. <laughs> 
his process as a killer. Oh, that was my question too. Of like, what is he just like pain? Is he is he torturing himself like the dude from the Da Vinci Code? Like, what's going on? Right, and there's so many unsatisfying character arcs in this film. Period. Yes. All of the main characters are just their stories just end. They they go through some type of growth and then like oh that's it movie's over blah, yeah blah, blah. and I think that's like how you said at the beginning it just took so long to get the ball rolling because this movie isn't that long it's like an hour forty and if you already take forty to fifty minutes with exposition setting up the story then you really only have 50 minutes to build 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 do rising action get a climax and then a resolution and i mean that's just not enough time no and we spend so much of the film at least in the first act uh, watching the fbi investigate the trail of starger before he's apprehended and discovered he's in a coma and then them going to Catherine Dean and it, we're about it's about 45 minutes before they actually sit down on the tables and go into his mind mm-hmm. that's a long time to get to the main crux of the film the whole reason of the film is to go into his mind and because of that it's so surface level that's why it was dare I say predictable at some points we're like oh she's just gonna go under his control but you know, it's like, wait, why is she losing reality, her grip of reality? Why? You know, you never see this prior with her other children, you know? You think, okay, isn't there any fail-safes that they set up? Or or maybe is this technology so much in its infancy that they don't know what the hell they're doing? But that would have been nice to see it more in action as opposed to just being told by characters. Yeah, there's so many other characters, um, Dylan Baker's character and uh, Marianne Jean-Baptiste's character, who are always cautioning Catherine that they can't do this with the technology and they can't do that. But nobody is really willing to push the boundaries of this remarkable revolutionary technology. Mm-hmm. And and the technology essentially is um, really what they can do is they put people in a coma and then they put this like, bed sheet over her their head and then they can essentially go inside their mind and uh for listeners that's kind of like what her job is she connects with the inner child of whatever you know i think this is the only serial killer that she deals with because most of her patients are uh children with some sort of mental disorder like um people that you know, with psychology, sometimes people retreat inside their mind where they become mute or they don't move limbs or such because mentally, you know, they get into a dark place. And that's kind of like her job, J-Lo's job, to reach their inner child and coax them out. Right. And then she ends the film. She's the only one that's really brave enough to try a new path with this technology and ends up making a breakthrough with Starger. Granted, she has to, you know, in a very symbolic way, sacrifice the 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 child in Starger's mind and it ultimately yeah. ends up killing him. And so, I mean, yeah, she, she comes away from this hopeful that she can use these techniques on the little boy she is helping. I think his name was Edward at the beginning of the film. But also on the flip side, Starger's dead. He's not going to face justice for his crimes. No, he's not. And I think that's kind of where, to me, it just, I don't know, it kind of lost track. The film kind of went off the rails. Because once Vince uh, Vaughn's character finds the woman in, like, the glass case, I was like, awesome, sweet. Not a terrible film, you know, but not an incredible film. But at least it had a good ending to the story. And then J-Lo goes back inside. She's the Virgin Mary. Vincent D'Onofrio's the devil. She shoots him with a golden arrow, then starts drowning this kid in a baptism as a virgin. It was just so, so weird. Like, I don't know. It was too much religious symbolism. And too, it just went off the rails. Yeah, and Novak especially. There was a really good opportunity to have Novak sort of be this emotional... Yeah crux of the film i mean he has this very tragic backstory of 
you know, a serial offender he busted as a DA and him going to the FBI. And that, that shot of him where he's clearly was sleeping in the FBI field office, brushing his teeth in a coffee mug. I mean, there's a there's a there's a story there of why he's spending his nights in the field office and it's not explored. Yeah. It's implied that he's it's implied he's staying there because he's just so committed and invested in the apprehension of Starger, but I don't know, there there was a bigger opportunity to really explore the inner workings of his character. I mean, is he really committed to this investigation or is he having trouble at home and that's why he's sleeping at the field office i don't know like yeah. it's it's an it's an avenue that remains unexplored in this they know, yes exactly you get a little dose of it when he talks about why he wants to be a you know in the fbi because the guy got set free you know and it was like you know uh, problems with the justice system but they just they give you little like teasers of character development and emotion. And then, nope, it goes. The film's like, we got to hurry up to the next scene. Well, and then then he goes into Starger's mind to free Catherine. Yeah. And he comes out and the FBI thinks that he's tainted. Yeah. And they fudge his records. And they fudge his records to say, oh, they just caught him in good old-fashioned investigative work. It was no, we didn't go into his mind. We didn't do anything like I that. I know. And they don't, I thought like on the helicopter, he was going to see stuff and like it was going to crash. He wouldn't be able to solve the murder because he'd go crazy. But we really didn't get anything from that. People, once he got out of the mind, everyone's like, oh, stop, don't, no, you need to be analyzed. And he's like, no, I must complete the mission. Da, da, da. But he does. And you really don't, there's like no after effects. No, and in, in hearing that his record the file was changed to reflect this whole you know oh the things were fine yeah you know i'm okay nothing bad happened it just i don't know if this happened for you but for me it was no surprise that the fbi did this for him because they just have a horrible history of terrible terrible things yes the fbi is not just being okay with fudging the truth is just nothing new to the FBI. <laughs> so you're you're a fellow uh you you know of the FBI's horrendous crimes and how they're not If you do a Google search for horrible things the FBI has done, you get pages and pages and pages of horrible horrible things that they've done to people. Oh, yeah. They're not a great organization that's why would people you know say oh the fbi released documents on blah 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 i'm like dude (laughs) you don't think they edited those documents they don't want you to know the truth get out of here here's a tiny list of just some of the horrible things that they've done they've they maintain files on prominent citizens for years like john lennon elvis presley groucho marx bob dylan and Mickey Mantle. Jesus, why Mickey Mantle? That's what I thought too. Like, how is hitting hundreds of home runs subversive to the FBI's effort to catch criminals? Like, what is so terrible about an American hero? Like, come on. Even John Lennon. Oh God, he's preaching about peace and love and not bowing down to the man, thinking for yourself. It's like, good lord, seriously. And Elvis Presley. What do you have against the king? Like, like what? Like. <laughs> right. What did did Jailhouse Rock hit a little too close to home for J. Edgar Hoover? Like what happened? Are you saying that maybe the FBI was super woke and mad at Elvis for stealing all those songs from African Americans back in the day? It's like, yeah, right. No. No. What what did he do? He died on the toilet, God forbid. The FBI has never been woke and never no. will be. So I don't I don't know what the point is there. <laughs> Right, though apparently they did release they all- uh, records on JFK a couple of years ago. Well, bully for them. <laughs> How truthful they are. They also they also ran a counterintelligence program which they called CoIntel Pro that surveilled and subverted political groups like the Black Panthers, oh, the American Indian Movement in the seventies and eighties, and the NAACP. What is wrong? What? What? And- Why? Why the American Indian Movement? Could we take their land? Is that not enough? Could you not give them that? Jesus. 
There are a lot of standoffs in the in the early seventies that really that invoked um, like a na- like a national response. Um, there was an in, there was a group of I think it was a Oglala Indians that took over um, a church at the Wounded Knee Reservation. I think in the seventies, oh. and then there was a there was a big time movement in in the early seventies to kind of grant Native Americans their rights and grant them more lands yeah. and you know actually not have corrupt officials running <laughs> you know running their reservations yeah. god forbid the people that we took their land from you know just wants just you know just wants a little bit of it back nope the fbi poo on the fbi this is force fed sci-fi's well, that- week of who's not doing their job the fbi come at me yeah, the FBI hasn't been doing their job for like 100 <laughs> years. Occasionally they get lucky, like the CIA. You know, Chris, now the FBI is going to monitor our podcast because we're saying all this. You know what? You know what? Unless they can prove that they didn't do these horrible, horrible things, I'm like, go go right ahead. All right, they can't get out. The truth cannot get out. We will shut you down. Balls in balls in your court. Balls in your corner, FBI. I mean, prove you didn't do these awful, awful things. <laughs> a year from now, all this all this fake news comes out about me and Chris. <laughs> oh, God. Now, th- th- <laughs> just hold a press conference and ask him, like, hey, remember the time you guys gave information to the Chicago Police Department and then you all killed a bunch of Black Panthers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that happened. I remember that, too. Uh <laughs> so what else this film i think though a good point in this film is they actually uh showcase technology being used for psychological means and that's kind of up my alley because i uh that's kind of my career that i'm studying in grad school i want to be like a counselor so i found it kind of fascinating seeing j-lo use you know it's some tech to go in people's minds and talk to their unconscious mind and try to help them through their issues how about you yeah i think it definitely poses an interesting thought i mean what can technology really do to help people who are afflicted with mental health issues i mean especially now where we are in quarantine people are self-isolating you know it can take a toll on your mental health oh absolutely i mean you know it's it's a tough time like as as much as like you know some people are getting good money on employment and it's like i do know like abuse is at an all-time high physical you know and all that stuff with people neglect and all that because you know it's we don't have the ability to leave the house you're stuck inside so it's it isn't all sun and rainbow it's like there are a lot of people struggling right there are resources out there for people to use and uh, one of them is the uh, using virtual reality can help people who are afflicted with PTSD by going through exposure therapy to kind of build up their psychological tolerance to those stressors. Mm-hmm. That's pretty dope. VR. I know we use, uh, well, this, the typical that they use like in the army and is, is like surveys. People fill out endless surveys and that's kind of like how they diagnose behavior. Though I do have my criticisms of surveys, as I learned in college, but that's like technology they use. Um, I know a lot of people, psychiatrists, they use a lot of MRIs now to like see, they scan the brains and like um, they could tell based on people that have anxiety, different glands in such an areas of the brain, like you'll have different responses. So they could say, oh, you have uh clinical depression which is something that we didn't really believe for the longest time no one thought that it was a disease you know depression or bipolar or any of that stuff we could you know you just thought oh give her some opiates she'll be fine have her smoke some cigarettes and she'll shut the hell up you know yeah here's some more cigarettes they're considered minty (laughs) smoke woman but thanks to uh they'll help with (laughs) they'll help with your nerves now smoke up Exactly. You know who loves smoking? The French, uh, our French cow man. He 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 knows a lot about that. We oui. in 
in the 40s and 50s when all these women and shell-shocked men came back from the war, we just gave them cigarettes and said, here, cheer up. Did the calm your nerves. Have it with your morning breakfast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for that insight. <laughs> Au revoir. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> but there is. It's the technology being used just health-wise to see and diagnose people is incredible. Plus, like you said, VR. I mean, there's so many there's also, methods nowadays. There's so many companies and apps that are out in the world right now, like um, Talkspace and BetterHelp, help match people to licensed therapists, and they can have sessions through either text message or call or video chats, and it's such a valuable service now for people and will likely be for the in the near future for... yeah for people who are self-isolating and are dealing with loneliness and depression and anxiety. Cause yes, it is a very scary time right now. Let's, it we're is. not going to sugarcoat it. It is. Yeah. It would suck to be uh, alone right nowadays and not have anyone. So definitely this is a uh, force fed sci-fi, a message. If you're struggling with that type of stuff, please do take advantage of these opportunities. Cause we care about you. <laughs> Mental health is no joke. Exactly. Ah, we'll rock on. That's so. That is a good takeaway from this film. Did you have any uh, lens flares or anything? You know, I've got one. And there, it's a scene early on in the first act where we see Jennifer Lopez hanging out at home. You know, she's having a joint. She's relaxing, <laughs> trying to fall asleep. But then we see her in her kitchen. You know, she's got on her panties. She's half naked in her kitchen, and then for some reason. The director had her bend over to pick something up and show off her booty. Yeah, I know. It's like, come on. Like, I get, we, we know Jennifer Lopez is a gorgeous woman, but this really <laughs> felt unnecessary at this point in the film. I know, that was mine too. Just so random. Like, really? <laughs> we get it. We understand, but come on, man. <sighs> She's guilty of the other lens flare I had picked was at the end of the film when she has adopted Starger's dog and is going to take it to live with her. Like, no, absolutely not. No. Yeah. Well, I, I love dogs. I really do. But no, that dog is going up for adoption to someone else. And uh, if I had taken that dog with me, all I'd be thinking was like, you probably helped him kill people. Didn't you? Well, did you know that? that <laughs> yeah, the dog did. The dog is not without sin. Did you know? That there is some toxic fandom this week about that dog. I no. Yes, I found out. So someone on IMDb about a dog. Yeah, the albino dog. They said on IMDb.com. I quote: An albino dog would lack almost all color: pink nose and eyes, not blue eyes and black nose. So apparently, there's someone that has an albino dog, and didn't like the fact that the dog had blue eyes and a black nose. So they felt albinos were misrepresented. They got all mad and took to the internet. And then they went to IMDb. And hey, nine out of 11 people found it interesting. So bully for oh, them. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, man. Did you have a, a red shirt, Sean? No, I mean, uh, I don't think anyone really died in this film other than like the boy. So no. Well, I, I, did you have a yellow shirt? A yellow shirt? An someone, yeah. someone that came through and did something of the unexpected. My unexpected, right. like the come through for me was uh, probably Vince Vaughn because like him for me, like going into the dream sequence, which is, you know, definitely the plot wanted him to go in. I just couldn't imagine myself doing that. Like someone's like, hey, go into this serial killer mind. It's like save her life. I just, so to me, he was my yellow shirt where I was like, you know, you're the only really good thing in this movie, your character. So kudos for you, man, for solving the case and the murder. So I was, I was happy with his portrayal. How about you? You know, I had a yellow shirt and he, he appears early on in the first act and then we don't see him much 
afterwards, but it's FBI agent Teddy Lee. Teddy Lee. And he's the, the one with the, he's got the big old mustache and he wears a white hat. Oh, that's right. That guy. He's the one who really broke the case. He identified the dog hair and he's played by James Gammon, who was in one of my favorite baseball films, Major League. He played the the crotchety old uh, manager, Lou Brown. So, yeah, Agent Teddy Lee and actor James Gammon are my yellow shirts this time. <laughs> well, kudos, man. That, that makes sense. The guy that did all the work, he's only in the film for like 10 minutes. Of course. Right. Of, and then boom, he's gone. Of course. <laughs> no credit to Teddy Lee, who really broke this case. <laughs> I would say this week of who's not doing their job is probably J-Lo. She like goes out of the dream sequence and then she like immediately mixes another serum of cocktail and goes right back in and locks everyone out and says, no, I must save the young boy inside the mine who I'm going to end up drowning in the pool of baptism. It's like, what? What? You're not doing your job, woman. There is nothing in Social Worker's Guide that says murder the child. You're not. No. <laughs> like if, no. Like, if I were a social worker and I saw, like, wait a minute. Like, why does it say in the job description we're going to drown people who can't be saved? Like, <laughs> what, what? what's this about? What kind of cult are we in now? <laughs> yes it's like yeah i'm gonna go i'm gonna go work at mcdonald's now see ya <laughs> the only the the like the cherry on top would be if she started drowning the kid and then it was like a picture of her butt there was like from a behind the view oh then God. then it would just be like this this film is off the rails we gotta shut this down uh <laughs> <laughs> With all of that in mind, let's discuss the legacy of The Cell. Sure. So, at the time of its release, it was a financial success. Mm -hmm. So, it grossed $104 million and was budgeted at $33.5 million. So, relative financial success for the year 2000. Yeah. But, it really kind of walked the line with critics. It was not well received. No. It currently holds a... 45% rating on Rotten Tomatoes as well as a 40 on Metacritic. So pretty well in line with those two ratings there. And that's based off of like 148 people. So it's not like, you know, 15 people saw this. So it is pretty, that's pretty decent. And again, take it, take your internet ratings for what you will. Yeah. But you know who was a big fan of this film? Oh, let me guess. Roger Ebert. Oh, yeah, he was. <laughs> he loves such random films. Let me tell you how much he loved this film. He gave it four out of four stars. Oh, my God. What? And even had the audacity to place this film in his list of 10 best films of the decade. Of, of the decade? Really? Of the of the decade, which I feel like he is off his rocker at that point. That's kind of, that's nuts. Of two, like maybe if he was like, all right, of 2000, but like of the 2000s or even, no, no, let's relax. Pump the brakes. There's like three Lord of the Ring films that are incredible that are right above this film. Right. This this film didn't even crack the, the top 10 of highest grossing films of that year. And it's, and you're going to call it one of the best of the decade. No, you're, you're insane. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like, if anything, this film, it's not even like a horror film as it's portrayed. <laughs> what, what, what? Well, it, that didn't stop it from being nominated for several awards. Oh, of course. It received an Academy Award nomination for best makeup. And also received several Saturn Award nominations for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Actress, Best Makeup, and Best Costume Design. All worthy nominations, in my opinion. What? At least for the Saturn Awards. I mean, what? I would not call this a an Academy Award worthy film by any stretch. I would say, see, I would disagree and say for Best Makeup, yes. I would say the costume, well, maybe costumes, and everything like their landscape for the dream sequences sure but outside of that that's it <laughs> like i mean it's dazzling but go on youtube and check it out for yourselves and we're coming back to mark protosevich he has effectively disowned this film <laughs> no way he is not a fan of the final product and he's gone on record stating it does not resemble his original vision at all and he still hopes to produce a more, uh, 
and a faithful adaptation of his uh, screenplay in the future. That's hilarious. <laughs> but he wrote it. Right. But, I mean, I think a lot of screenwriters, especially, like, for your first one, like you know, it's your baby. It's it's the one you you get you get made first. I mean, they're very protective of their work, and they want to make sure it's brought to screen correctly. And you know, I can understand why he might be upset, but at the same time, like, dude, you probably got paid. Don't worry about it. Yeah, right. He probably it was his introduction to Hollywood to see like how it actually works. But hey, man, it made like almost seventy million dollars. So you know, over beyond the budget. So, hey, it's a win. Take it. And I don't know if you saw this, but The Cell also received a direct-to-video sequel in 2009. (laughs) Oh, God. However, that film eliminates the use of the machines to enter into people's minds and instead uses um, the protagonist's psychic abilities to investigate the the, the serial killer's mind. (laughs) So it kind of goes into more of the fantastical horror aspects of this film. Oh, okay. Well. And no, The Cell 2 will not be on the list. No, no. And <laughs> no. And I can't find any information about how that film was received or how to watch it. So no, we are not going to be adding The Cell 2 to the list. Right. They even like used a lady that looks like J-Lo on the cover. It's so bad. This is terrible. No, we're not watching this. <laughs> no, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so, what do you say we rate the cell? Sure. Shall we? Sure. So, on our unique scale in the force-fed sci-fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, what do you give to 2000's The Cell? So, for 2000's The Cell, I would give this film a, personally for me, I would say, I don't think I would ever watch this again. Um, I do think if you want to learn how to make spicy music videos or <laughs> see fantastic dream sequences, go to YouTube and like, I'm sure someone's compiled all the dream sequences. Like if you're a filmmaker and you want to know how to make really flashy, cool, like sets and all that, check it out. But beyond the set work and everything, the story just falls so flat. It takes forever to build, get this thing cooking. Um, It's just, it's unfortunate because they have a lot of talent and it's just so underutilized and lost in the sauce. Um, It almost feels like the director was more concerned with making the film like flashy you know, with crazy camera angles and really cool makeup and costumes, but he didn't give any um, time to, like, really develop the characters or give even the actors some um, tips. So with that, I would say a would not watch. How about you? You know, I think this is an example of a film that tries too hard. But it's not the fault of the actors. They're doing everything they can to try and salvage this. And it all depends on what you're receiving from your director and how this scene is and how the scene is written. And the cell is brought down by the fact that Tarsim Singh was a rookie director and he went way over the top in the imagery in this film. And the images themselves are what unnerves us while watching it. It's not the story, it's not the characters. And I do think if this were more of a straightforward detective story instead of the weird genre bender that it is, I think this may have been a more enjoyable watch. But who's to say in the hands of a different director, this could have been a much different film. The lack of character arcs are frustrating and the length of the film isn't currently long enough to flesh out these characters. And given this frustration I have with the characters and the imagery, I agree with you. I would call this film a would not watch. Yay. We agree. (laughs) Bada boom, baby. Bada boom. (laughs) I agree with you there. So with that being said, let's pick our next film and talk to our friendly number generator, Major Samantha. Yes. We're going to 
enlist the help of Mage is Samantha to help us select from a list of 118 films. And from that list, she has selected number 32. It is a film from the year 2012 starring Carl Urban and directed by Pete Travis. It is Dread. No way. <laughs> Sweet. Ah, I'm excited. I haven't seen this in forever. Oh, oh, sweet. Me neither. That's going to be a fun watch. Rock on, man. Well, sweet. Awesome. Yeah, that'll be our film for next time. Please watch and enjoy with us. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Force Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. ForceFed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.